Okay, everyone pause. Now, unless you're driving, close your eyes and picture Philmont. Feel free to wander around a bit in that scene. Okay, eyes open. Now, I'm willing to bet that at least half of you pictured perhaps a cabin, nestled into the trees or looking out into a meadow. There's just something about a cabin in the woods, specifically a backcountry cabin in the Philmont woods, that draws us in. In the words of Jean Logsdon, a cabin can symbolize the embrace between civilization and nature, as humans literally are wrapping the trees around themselves, just as they might draw on a coat and hat. For Pete Burgundy, working on the Philmont Cabin Restoration Team, benefited him in such a way that he could not come up with aspects of his current professional life that were not directly traced back to it. Pete was a Philmont Trek participant in 2007 and 2009. He worked seasonally in 2014 on the cabin restoration team. In 2015, 16, and 17, he was the cabin restoration foreman. And from 2018 to early 2021, Pete worked full-time at the ranch as the cabin restoration maintenance technician. In this episode, Pete shares a brief history of the cabin restoration origin and how it's been managed by many different departments at the ranch. He shares a rich and descriptive overview of three large projects he was a part of, including the Cypher's Mine Stomp Cabin, the Valle Vidal Clayton Cabin, and the Fish Camp Caretaker's Quarters. He also walks us through the basic cabin restoration process. And Pete credits camp directors, outside contractors, and national forest archaeologists as being part of the bigger picture of the cabin restoration team. Lastly, Pete was asked to write the proposal for and hold the role of the first ever full-time cabin restoration position at the ranch. So as you listen, consider that cabin in your mind and all the generations of staff, visitors, and builders who've been a part of its story. Lastly, I want to wish you all a magical holiday season and quality time spent with those you love near and far. Okay, everybody, I'm here today with Pete. Okay, shoot. How do you say your last name, Pete? <laughs> Burgundy. That's what I was going to guess. Okay, Pete Burgundy. And are you in Minnesota? Is that where mm-hmm. you're coming from today? Yeah, yeah. I'm, okay. I'm uh, in Duluth, Minnesota right now. Yeah. Beautiful. My my folks have a cabin up north, and I've always wanted to go the extra mile and check out the city of Duluth. So maybe someday I'll make it up there. Where are you originally from? I was born and raised in Cheyenne, Wyoming. And I lived there until I left high school and went to college out in Washington State. So you, um, I know you went on a few treks as a participant, but w- I'd love to hear your backstory about how you were first introduced to Philmont. I grew up in a scouting family. My dad was a Boy Scout, was an Eagle Scout. He went to Philmont in 1962. And then, was it 40 years later, in 2002, he went back with my oldest brother. So... I'd heard about it a good bit when I was growing up. My dad credits his backpacking at Philmont as the reason why he moved out of North Dakota to Wyoming, because he was ready to get out of the prairie and into the mountains. I went on two treks, like you mentioned. I, I went on a trek in 2007 with my older brother, Andy, and his troop. And then two years later, I went on a second trek with my twin brother. Both of them were seven-day treks. Both of them were like the 813, 814 timeline. So we caught the very tail end of the summer. I remember being the last crew through uh, Harlan in 2007 uh, and seeing as we were hiking out of camp, folks putting things on the porch, what I would come to learn was gather. Uh, But then I just thought they were cleaning. So yeah. So and then, you know, I worked in, I had a job, I worked in Washington, DC for a summer and wore a suit and went to work every day. And I was facing graduation from college. And so I was thinking to myself, man, I should probably do something that I don't have to wear a suit anymore, where I can go just do whatever I want, go hang out in the woods. And that was kind of the broadest level impetus for me 
trying to sign back on uh, as a staff member at Philmont. Just kind of hopping back to your treks. Do you remember, did it feel like the camp was closing down or did you still have an awesome time? I, I don't really remember it my second trek so much, but my first trek, I absolutely remember camp shutting down. Our last night on trail, we were at Hedadine. And I remember them just saying, empty out the swap box, take whatever you want. Swap, swap rules no longer apply. And so I, I remember I'm loading up, I think on, I think on squeeze cheese and, um, I always, I always kind of wondered about those last final crews. You kind of get to see a little bit of a different scene and maybe hopefully mm-hmm. there's still enthous- enthusiasm from the staff. Yeah, that's interesting. That's funny to hear. So then you came back in 2014. That was your first summer on mm-hmm. seasonal staff. And you did you apply for cabin restoration? Had you Do you have a background in woodworking or any of that? Uh, no, not at all. I didn't apply for it. I didn't know it existed. I don't have a strong background in it, at least at the time. I applied late. I applied in like end of February, beginning beginning of March, maybe. David O'Neill sent a couple emails about like, hey, okay, we're still hiring. But he emailed me saying, hey, we're looking to fill these these spots. I think there was a list of things like, do you have cooking experience? Do you have carpentry experience? Do you have uh, blacksmithing? Like, tell us about extracurriculars. And I was like, well, I had a really good high school woodshop teacher. I did that for four years. Like, I, I guess I have some level of carpentry experience. And I also had worked in a kitchen at that time too. So I was like, I, well, I know how to cook. I worked in a kitchen. I was a cook and I, know, I had high school woodshop. And they, they came back to me saying, well, we have two options for you, backcountry or cooking in a dining hall or maybe a backcountry cook. I, I can't recall. But I do remember thinking, well, one of these is for sure going to be in the backcountry. So I'm going to do that. And it was nothing but luck and happenstance in a good high school vocational program that got me the job at Philmont. That's excellent. So you are well known today for um, doing a lot of awesome uh, stuff on cabin restoration. So it's kind of fun to hear the backstory. Would I be right to say that you learned a lot at Philmont and you honed that skill at Philmont through working on cabin restoration? Oh, yes. Yeah. I, I studied mathematics and economics. That's what my degrees are in. Everything that I learned and undertook at Philmont was a result of a lot of concerted independent study. But there was a bunch of people that helped me out while I was there, too. Um, so it was by no means like me by myself in the woods. There was a there was a group of folks that were willing to lend a helping hand when needed. Yeah, that's usually the case at Philmont, which is how how it works. How how it's so magical. So what? So cabin cabin restoration is it that are you guys under um, maintenance or cons? So when I started, I was under neither. When I was a staff member, a cabin restoration staff. And then while I was the foreman, so from 2014 until 2017, we were a direct report to both Mark Anderson and David O'Neill. Okay. Um, so Mark was, so- at the time, he had, he had a lot to do when I started with work at the Rich Cabin site. And then that sort of transitioned more and more into David David's wheelhouse until 2017 when I when I was working directly with David. So from my understanding, you were at Philmont in the, the late 20 aughts, early 20 teens? Yeah, so 2007 to 2013. And I remember cabin restoration at Rich Cabins. Mm-hmm. Uh, I never worked there, but I remember them being there and a couple other places. Um, and they were sort of, in my eyes, like an extension of the program counselors and camp mm-hmm. directors. So yeah, how has it evolved since then? It's been around for a long time. From my recollection, I could be wrong here, but I recall there being the first iterations of cabin restoration back in 1996, 1997. There was a group that stayed late in August of maybe 1997, and they went down the Black Mountain, and they added... The cabin down at Black Mountain today is not necessarily the cabin that was there 100 years ago. It's the same footprint, but they added an extra log or two on the eaves and made the pitch of the roof steeper. So you have a lot more headroom in there today than we used to. And that was done in like a 10 day period, I think in, in 1997. And again, I could be way wrong. So if someone hears this and says, God darn it, Pete, like get your facts straight. There's an asterisk next to that one. Um, (laughs) No, I think that's, I think that's correct. It was definitely sometime in the 
in that era. Um, I believe uh, I've I've spoken with Larry McLaughlin about that because he he skipped a summer at Black Mountain when they were raising the roof. Mm-hmm. He didn't want to be there while they were they were working on it. And then it became for a while. It was there was a in '98 there was like three cabin restoration crews, and they had a bunch of like I don't know if it was a conservation esque project with conservation hours, but they definitely had. Uh, participants helping them. They redid the entire museum down at French Henry. The cabin restoration crews are the ones that built uh, the Abreu cabin. And at the time, it was under the direct leadership of Anthony Martinez, the carpentry foreman and shop foreman for the maintenance department. So at its beginning, it was a maintenance program. It then lasted until the early thousands in some iteration. And by the early thousands, I guess it kind of went on hiatus, came back in the late thousands at Rich Cabins under the backcountry leadership. And then in 2018, it went back to maintenance when I was hired on full time. Okay, cool. That's a good snapshot of cabin rest, cabin restoration. Okay, so you've probably worked a ton of projects. Do mm-hmm. you want to list some of, some of them off for fun real quick? Oh, man, like the big ticket, the big ticket ones are 2017, 2019, and 2020 in part because I'd been there long enough that I'd, I'd built some skills that we were able to take on bigger projects. But in 2017, we dismantled the stomp cabin down to grade and then built a foundation underneath it and then put it back. At Cypher's. At Cypher's Mine, yeah. So the, oh stomp gosh, cabin, yeah. the stomp cabin, we started on like June 7th with taking the roof off. And then by October, I think 8th or 12th, we were able to have the stomp back in the cabin. So, I mean, it was a two month project from taking it down from the, like down to ground level, building foundation and putting it back on. That was super cool. 2019 was awesome because we were working in the Vivadol at a place called Clayton Camp or Clayton Cabins, depending on what map you're looking at. And it's, at like the far, far northwestern boundary of the radio network. So it's really difficult to, like we, we were very challenged to listen in on the like itinerary readout in the evenings. But that was a super cool one because that was the first project I helped with as a full-time staff member. And we were, there was a crew of five of, five of the cabinetress guys plus myself. We'd camp up there all summer in the middle of nowhere with no one around and that was super cool we saw more members of the public than we saw members of philmont that year and what what was the third one you mentioned a well third. 2020 i we started and it's ongoing and i yeah, we started the restoration down at fish camp starting on oh. the, the caretaker's cabin yeah so that's we, a big project yeah yeah and from my understanding talking with some of the folks that worked on that this year or continue to work on it this year, uh, they've wrapped it up pretty much. I think there's some punch list items left, but that's the phase they're in is the punch list items. So that was another one. That that was the caretaker's cabin that, that we dismantled, labeled everything, dismantled it, built a foundation, and then restacked the logs and, and reframed in the floor, redid the windows. It was a stellar project, and and from the photos I've seen, the crew that picked up that work after I left have really done a stellar and outstanding job. Did they restore that one at Fish Camp in order to use it for program or for housing for the staff? I guess it started in 2019. I'm going to mix the timelines up here, but in 2020, there was a large pot of money made available through a donor-designated donation to the restoration at Fish Camp. The ultimate goal is to fix up the routed lodge. And I guess I should say that like, I haven't been involved in this now for 12 months almost. So I can speak pretty knowledgeably about the intentions that I kind of left and what I was envisioning, but it very well could have changed since I was there. And it probably has. Mm -hmm. But Mm -hmm. when I was there, the intention was to fix up the caretaker's cabin, get it electrified with solar, get the radio in there, get plumbing in it, and transition it usage to a more functional and more isolated kind of, it's going to be the staff cabin for a number of reasons. It's easier with utilities because the water's on that side of the, on that side of the Creek. Uh, yeah. It, it, and if we're thinking about historic preservation in general, it's kind of a secondary structure 
at that site. Yeah. The primary importance of that site is in Rayada Lodge first and second in the uh, the guest cabin and, and fly tying cabins. And mm-hmm. third, the caretaker's cabin was out on the side. So by turning this thing, my argument, my perspective is by turning the caretaker's cabin back in to the staff dwelling, it's quite literally serving as the caretaker's cabin again. And I think there's right. a certain logic in that that makes sense when you're trying to portray the the history of that site. And one thing that I always thought would, would have been really cool by doing that is like we know a bunch about Wade Phillips and, and the Charles Dawes party that went to fish camp. But shoot, like we know the couple, it was the Peoples, Mr. and Miss Peoples that were the caretakers. And like, mm-hmm. I bet they have a cool story to tell. Like, why can't we talk about them? Like, it's, yeah. yes, it's awesome that that we can portray and, and re- revitalize some of the history of White Phillips for participants. But I think there's a bunch more stories that exist on the edges of that site specifically that when I was there was my hope that could come to fruition. And again, I don't know if that's that's still the case, but. That was the thought yeah. when I was there and the impetus, because with, with the staff moved into the caretaker's cabin, you could have a safe, productive work site without having to have tours, without having to have scouts, without having to have other staff in and out of a building like the Radder Lodge, because that's going to be a big project. They're going to, I mean, oh yeah, that's yeah. a big project. And there's some safety considerations for having people there. So that's, yeah. that's kind of that's- why we took that approach. Oh, I like that a lot. That's very cool. I I worked at fish camp, so um, that's all very near and dear to my heart. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, at the time, okay, now I'm like forgetting what year I worked there. So I worked there in, yeah, 2010, camp director in 2010. And at the time we, the caretaker's cabin was used sort of as like the home base for whatever program counselor was doing uh, fly fishing that day. Mm -hmm. So, uh, but I remember it being, you know, a pretty rugged rugged cabin and um it'd be awesome to see it today and see what what it's become so well and we've really changed a bunch there too because it was also known as like the fly casting meadow or the the fly casting cabin right Um, yes yeah we we ended up taking a lot of the trees out of that area because they were for a number of reasons they were impacting the structure and so it it in many ways we have we have sought to revive to bring back the landscape that shows up in those pictures from the thirties. Um, nice. so it, it really is yeah. a neat, neat area. And if you get a chance, I would highly recommend, I mean, I tried to get out there when I was in New Mexico and just time was against me, but I, I still want to see it. I haven't seen it. Okay. So say you're going to restore a cabin. Uh, what does that look like? What does that process look like? Oh, I mean, there's whole master's <laughs> programs about that. Um, okay. none of which I've taken. So, so my perspective <laughs> is, my perspective is as someone is learning on the job, but from, for just run of the mill cabins at Philmont, they kind of can by, be divided. First off, there are n- nationally registered historic sites at Philmont. Those have a different set of rules that you need to play by. Those have a different set of guidelines that you work within in general, in the world of his- historic preservation. We try and do work that follows, not necessarily to the letter, but certainly in the intention. We try to follow the, the st- Secretary of Interior's standards for rehabilitation and restoration. Those are a set of guiding principles that inform the majority of the work. So when thinking about a cabin like the Cypher's Mine structure, the first question that I had when asked, hey, like this cabin is in need of help. Like, what do you do? The first question I asked was like, what is it going to be used for? So function. Function is very important. What is this thing going to be used for? And I guess we should back up a, a, a step to say that very specifically, I'm talking about rehabilitation and not restoration and not renovation. And okay. from here on out, <laughs> I'm going to use all those things as synonyms. But for anyone that okay. wants to nitpick, we're talking about rehabilitation. We're taking an old building for a different purpose and repurposing it for a modern use, maintaining its historic character. Rehabilitation. But we're going to call everything restoration. It's fine. So okay. <laughs> when talking about restoring the stomp cabin, we, we want to know what we're going to use it for. We're going to use it for the stomp program. So, okay. So we need to know that we need to be able to stack kids in here. We need to know we need to have a, route, a loud and raucous performance space for the uh, staff. 
We need to make sure that the doors open and close. We need to make sure the windows open and close. We need to make sure it's weatherized or weatherproof so we can kind of close it down and put it to bed for the winter. We need to do all of these things and maintain the historic appeal of it. The second thing I look at is what is wrong with the building. Most structures at Philmont suffer from a big, well, historic structures at Philmont suffer from a backlog of deferred maintenance, and that is just the way it is. There's more work, there's more work than there's time in the day. And there's also old buildings. The deferred maintenance in general that, that afflicts log structures or logs are resting on the ground, so they soak up water. With water comes insects, with water comes mold. Both of those things deteriorate the material. So as that material decays, it shrinks and gets compacted, and the building itself will get shorter. And that's what was happening at the Stomp Cabin. That's what was happening at the Cypher. That's what was happening at Stomp Cabin. That's what's currently happening at all of the buildings at Fish Camp. That's what's happening at French Henry. And that's what's going to happen to any new building that's built up at Philmont, whether it's log or frame that's in close contact to the ground. So we've talked about step one, identifying what the usage, step two, identifying the problem, step three, figuring out how we're going to remediate those issues and how are we going to do so while maintaining the historic character of the site? How are we going to make a sympathetic addition or a sympathetic alteration that makes the building usable, but also doesn't detract? At most sites, we can just simply pull a log out of a building and put it back in. That's what they were doing at uh, Rich Cabins. In other areas where you have much more extensive damage and the building is significantly less complex, such as a single room cabin at Stomp versus a seven or eight room cabin at Rich Cabins, we chose that was a decision that my staff and I came to that it would be the safer, the quicker, and ultimately the easier way to just label everything, take it apart, put a foundation in so we could get up off the ground. If ground contact is your concern, you either move things up or you dig ground down. And we didn't want to dig all the ground down because it was just going to keep accumulating uh, from the hillside. So we built a foundation up to elevate the logs up off the ground, restack the logs, framed in a new floor with, I think, 2 by 10 floor joists, 16-inch on center to support the load of the crews. We did 2 by 12 floorboards, again, to support the load of the crews. And then we rehung doors and windows. Um, so those are kind of the three big areas. Identify yeah. the usage, identify the problems, propose solutions, and I guess step four is do the work. So then I assume when you take on these projects like the Cypher Stomp Cabin, you lived there all. Was that during the summer? Did you, mm-hmm. Were you there all summer? Okay. So you got to kind of... Uh, I don't know if you're a musician or if you sing, but like, did you get to partake in, were Mm -hmm. you kind of on staff that year? Did you get to have a a ruckus show? (laughs) Yeah. All of the, all of the music camps I was ever at, I worked at Rich Cabins and Cypher's Mine specifically and the cabin restoration staff. And this is a, a kudos to the camp directors I worked with while at those sites. That's a huge benefit to being on cabin restoration is because you get you get to do this work you don't necessarily have to work with participants which is not my strong suit and then you get to hang out in the evening and listen to music or if you're musically inclined i am not if you are you can play play an instrument participate in skits you're yeah so i was we were always welcome when we were at a a staff camp for a full season my my crews and i were always welcome to join in and and I'm internally thankful for those camp directors because that made a huge difference in the enjoyment yeah. of the summers. So I know you were also talking about there. You do have a crew. You know, there's cabin rest. There's a cabin restoration team. Mm-hmm. Um, w- was there anyone out there that maybe like a supervisor or maybe a camp director or somebody in a totally different department, but anybody that really mentored you or inspired you, uh, challenged you on your time there? When it comes to specific projects um i'm thinking of like rich cabins and cypher's mine here well and even even like because we did a bunch for a couple years cabin restoration in like 2016 we rotated between sites all summer and we did Mm. the same thing in in 2000 before we went to clayton corrals in 2019 we rotated between a bunch of different sites in general it was my experience that camp directors when we were at the site for the full summer 
became like a really awesome sounding board because they have to, they're in living history camps. They have to portray what we're doing. They have to explain it away to participants, but they also become like a really awesome pressure relief valve for a seasonal foreman. Cause the foreman is at the same leadership level as, as a first year camp director. They go through yeah. camp director training. And so being able to like have someone to complain to at the end of the day, that's not necessarily each other's staff was like awesome. So yeah, I remember doing that with like, in 2015, I remember doing that with like Kyle Sawyer in the 2017 with Kelly Mazenobiel. Um, like that was awesome. In terms of technical work, in terms of like education and, and how to do the hard skills of camera restoration, for a number of years up until 2017, we were, we being Philmont, was engaged with a contractor out of Taos who would often make site visits at the beginning of the summer and if need be come at particularly and technically challenging portions of a project and provide his contracting knowledge. And he was a pleasure to work with. His name was Wayne Rutherford and he was awesome. And I think he's still building uh, and renovating out of Taos, but he was a really good guy to work with. And he taught me a ton, even in the half dozen days that I worked with him over three or four years. Like he was a really good instructor and really charitable in his knowledge. Speaking of that contractor out of Taos, when you were working in the Vividal unit of the Carson mm -hmm. National Forest, were there partnerships, I assume, that you had to work with when you guys were up there? I worked really closely with the archaeologists. So the Forest Service, and I've really learned a lot about this since leaving Philmont, but the Forest Service system of, of historic structures is, exists in this world of archaeology. And so every forest has archaeologists, and it's the archaeologists that are responsible for the historic sites, whether they're um, Native American or uh, post-colonial like white settlers. So I worked with Carrie Levin. The, at the time, she was the East Zone archaeologist. Not the East Zone, pardon me. She was the Cuesta district archaeologist and then the east zone archaeologist was a guy named heath bailey and he was new to the forest in 2019 i think maybe he came in 2018 i don't quite recall but i worked really closely with those two in developing kind of the emergency stabilization plan that we ended up putting together the 2019 project was so cool to me because it started Many, many years earlier, in 2016, when my crew and I spent nine days at Clayton Cabin doing the site evaluation and putting together the kind of the stabilization plan that we were ultimately able to undertake three years later in 2019. So that was a really fun multi year, multi agency project that really, I think we were able to do some good work. For those of us listeners who have not been there, what is at Clayton Cabins? What are you guys working on there? It's public land. So everyone should visit respectfully because it's where they also have some cattle operations, but it's, it's super, super cool. So if anyone can call them their mind's eye Clayton Corrals at the top of the Vivadol, the big Vivadol, Clayton Corrals exists right off the Sarasota Road. If you're standing at that point looking south you're looking out over an expansive meadow that meadow the big valle is like six miles long it's huge beautiful it is roughly kidney bean shaped with the concave portion facing west and it's a big drainage so all the water that falls in there funnels down through this um, meadow ultimately into the vidal, vidal creek and the vidal creek flows through for lack of a better term, a, a canyon, I don't know, uh, a large rock formation. It's like 200 feet tall, large rock formation. It's like, um, I don't know, it's maybe 300 yards across at the base, real steep on both sides. The creek runs through it. If you're standing west looking east, you look through this notch, through this canyon into the big bay. I mean, it's stunning. The cabin is located at the confluence of the Vidal Creek and the Foreman Creek, together they form the Comanche Creek. 
the cabin was built the early part of the 20th century from all our understanding. It was maybe a cow camp, maybe a homestead. It's within a mile, mile and a half, I believe, of the old LaBelle town site. So it could have been someone that was just living on the outskirts of town because there used to be a bunch of wagon roads that went through that area on the LaBelle Elizabeth, Elizabeth town route and the Trinidad Elizabeth town route. So it used to be a much more populated area. And I don't know mm-hmm. the history exactly, but it's a spectacular place. It's a, we took a room off it because we needed to, but the building itself is like this phenomenal example of log structures. Like it's, it's up on stilts instead of being built into the earth. They mm-hmm. put it up on a, on a post and beam foundation timber piers and so when you're on this porch you're up off the meadow and you just get this kind of perpetual breeze uh through this narrow spot in the landscape that is i mean it's just spectacular is that project completed or it was a yeah, sta- it was a, it was it's so it'd be called a stabilization and so we identified it's not being used there's not a there's not a definitive plan for it to be used we didn't undertake any sort of restoration work or rehabilitation work with that in mind. We, we identified some structural deficiencies with the building relating to a, does it make sense? Something that's like, that's not historically sympathetic, meaning that it, it was added on. It doesn't make sense anymore. doesn't make sense with the original structure. And in this case, it was actively harming it. it what it was, was a, there's a, the main room of the cabin is it's like there was the there was this bedroom addition that was added, and for a number of reasons, as the foundation failed, the building started to settle, and as that happened, they had tied the addition into some structural elements of the main building, and it was like literally pulling the building off the hillside. So we removed that unsympathetic addition because it was hurting the building. And then we replaced the foundations in kind. Um, nice. We, we jacked that makes it up to a bunch. So, it, I mean, it was, it's a very neat building and, and a cool project to be a part of. During all your time at, at Philmont, was there anything you ever like got called upon to do that you totally weren't expecting to have to do? Well, we built like a animal shelter. I used to call it a barn, but looking back, it's just a, it's just a shed. <laughs> at Crooked Creek. The animals didn't have a place to stay. So in 2016, we spent two weeks, no, four weeks at Crooked Creek building up like a pole barn of sorts to provide shelter for the cow or cows, burrow or burrows and goats. Yeah. I didn't expect that because like yeah. that's, that's not cabin restoration. That's like new construction. It was super cool, like yeah. a cool project. But it was it was kind of out of left field in terms of like, well, this doesn't make a whole lot of sense for the job title, but I guess that's what but we're going to do. If you could work in any other department or do anything else at Philmont, what would you want to do? That is a really tough question for me, in part because I've worked in a lot of the departments, but also because it was that question exactly that got me into the full time position. So in in like October of 2017. Kevin Dowling was like, Hey Pete, like, what do you want to do? And I, and my response was, well, the job I really want doesn't exist. And he's like, well, what's that? And I was like, I would love to be a full-time cabin restoration person. I'd thought about it for a number of years and I thought this would be a cool thing. I would love to do that. That October, while I was sitting in the dining room at PTC with Kevin, he was like, go ahead and put together a proposal and we'll see what we can do. And so that that that's not lost on me in terms of his generosity, but in terms of like what job would I want to do that I didn't get to do or that I haven't been able to do is, I mean, I think it, I, I would have loved to have been a PC. I would have loved to have been a backcountry, backcountry manager. I applied for all of those things and was always in the cabin restoration positions. You also worked um, several fall fall seasons mm-hmm. uh, seasonally before you went full time. Uh, you were an autumn adventure guide. You were down at Kit Carson and uh, also worked on the forestry crew. Mm-hmm. Any takeaways from from those experiences? Uh, Uraka isn't. I was on the forestry crew. We were working at Uraka in twenty seventeen. 
is an awesome place to be in a snowstorm. Uh, I mean, it wasn't a big snowstorm, but it was just like beautiful in a way that I did not anticipate. Working in the museums is awesome in part because David Warhane is just like a font of knowledge and hanging out at Rayado in the fall is like awesome too. And guiding is cool too. Cause that's, that's really the, the time I was an autumn adventure guide is really the only time I, I had direct meaningful daily impact with participants because everything else I was kind of in the background doing maintenance related things, whether it's forestry or uh, structures. I myself was also a guide and I learned a lot being an autumn adventure guide and, and winter guide because I had never uh, been a ranger. So I, I that was like drinking from a fire hose in a good way. Mm-hmm. I really enjoyed guiding in, in the in the off seasons, uh, as they used to call them. Um, so when you were on the forestry crew, what exactly did you were you doing? Was that 2017? So that was when it was still like Zach Seeger was still running the prescriptions and we were working on the prescription. I can't. I, 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 the prescription at Uraka and Mike Crockett may call me and tell me I'm wrong, but I think it was. I think we were tasked with taking anything, anything six inches or smaller out of the program area. We we were thinning around the program elements um, and building a bunch of slash piles. But I I don't remember <laughs> the directions we were given. <laughs> but there was a beautiful snowstorm that you got to yeah. experience. So that yeah, well, and we had a, there was a good crew that year. A lot of fun people were on that forestry crew. For for any maybe like uh, future staff members listening, do you have any advice for anyone interested in being in cabin restoration? It's all I love it. I wouldn't do I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing today if I hadn't had that experience. Like flat out, like I I am so like so. I, I have been benefited so much from doing that job that it's it's hard for me to see aspects of my professional life that can't be traced back to working on cabin restoration. It can also be a really challenging area to work in, in part because like when I started there, like I, I worked in that program for a better part of seven years, but for the first three years, I was just kind of bumbling around, but I was supposed to be the foreman. I was like, I can read a book as well as anyone. So like, I guess that's what we're going to do to learn how to do this stuff. So I guess the advice I would have is if you're at all interested in in it, go for it. Recognize that you're going to learn a lot. You might be asked to teach yourself a lot, but you're going to be provided the latitude and more importantly, the support to do it. So I I think it's absolutely well worth the, the opportunity if it's offered to anyone. Awesome. Um, I'm going to go do it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's great. I love it. I love it so much. And I would say that if people are thinking, like, it's a great if people that are interested in trades work do cabin restoration because it makes you a better tradesman and, or tradeswoman. But if you're at all interested in engineering or architecture or construction science or any of these things that are kind of tangentially related to building, Having some hands-on experience will make you as an engineer, you as an architect, a more relatable and ultimately more helpful person to work with when it comes to being on job sites with future tradespeople. Having like some hands, having some dirt on your hands as a, as a as a working professional, in my opinion, helps a bunch because it makes you more relatable and it gives you an understanding in a way that's really difficult if all you've done is study the books. Don't get me wrong, like. There's a great, great number of people that come out from the academic track that do phenomenal work. But I do think that having some hands-on experience, if you're going into those technical fields, benefits you. And it, it's not going to hurt you. And it certainly has a good chance of helping you. So you did, you did work full-time from June of 2018 to January 2021. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, working full-time... And living in Cimarron is a lot different than the seasonal experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, did you did you just know it was your time to to move on, or was that a bit of a heartbreak to have to exit? There's an asterisk here because, like, I, I'm trying to be constructive, um, but like, I would say, like, it was it was both. It was both. Like my time, like I was no longer learning things. I didn't feel challenged in my position anymore. I was frustrated by this, like the opportunity. Well, also like I spent a year of COVID, a year and a half of COVID. 
yeah, in that yeah. tiny community, which like was awesome, but also like, man, I was ready to go to a movie theater and like go to a bar where people didn't know my name. Now that I live in a big city, like I kind of miss the the community a lot, and I miss the. When I was in New Mexico, I was like, gosh, I just want to be anonymous for a day. And now that I live in a big city, I'm like, gosh, <laughs> anonymity sucks. Like, I would love it if my neighbor just was like, hey, how you doing today, Pete? And, like, we just don't know each other as much as we I knew my neighbors down there. Um, yeah, I kind of forgot what the question was. But it's definitely different living in Cimarron as a full-time employee than, than it is living at base as a seasonal employee. I, I myself have considered... Um full-time employment at Philmont many times, like many of us have. And so I've definitely gone down that path in my mind. And who knows, maybe someday. uh, I'm I'm glad that you were able to do it. And uh, uh, it sounds like you've just done so much for the program. So it's really cool to, to get to hear you talk about it. This, this last year, so I left Philmont. I, I spent this last year working with um, an AmeriCorps-affiliated nonprofit here in Duluth doing historic preservation trade skill education for young adults. We had AmeriCorps volunteers that did some phenomenally good work on historic preservation on sites across Minnesota. Like last month, I was helping teach Forest Service um, archaeologists and AmeriCorps volunteers had to replace logs, uh, CCC era log building. A couple weeks before that, I was teaching folks how to re-roof a log structure and reframe a bathroom. So it's stuck with you. You're you're yeah. still in that on oh, that path, yeah. Yeah, I wouldn't. Like I've said, I wouldn't. I wouldn't have been. I wouldn't be here today doing what I'm doing without having done cabin restoration. There is a bright line between my first summer as a staff member through my years as a foreman, through my years as a full-time staff that puts me here and having done the work I've done. What do you miss most about Philmont? I miss a lot of it. And I kind of, I miss, there's like some things I miss from full-time life and some things I miss from seasonal life that are very, that like, for example, the thing I miss the most from full-time life is like the fire department. Like I loved being on the fire department. I thought it was just, such a good, valuable, fun experience. It's one of the few things in my life that is so unimpeachably good that like no one can talk, say, gosh, what a waste of time for doing that. It's like, well, no, it was awesome. And we did some like good work. I really miss the fire department. If I lived in a community with a volunteer fire department, I would be on it again because I enjoyed the film up one so much. Mm-hmm. From the seasonal side of things, I miss the camaraderie. I miss being surrounded by a huge group of friends that have, and maybe just acquaintances that have such a strongly held core set of values. Like everyone's supposed to follow the Boy Scout oath and law. But really what people do is like they care about the wilderness when they work at Philmont. And like, that's like awesome. Like, yeah, okay. Some people might have very disparate political beliefs, but at least we're all on the same page about Hey, it's good to go camping. Hey, it's good to cook over a stove or on a wood stove. Like this is cool. And that's that's rare I think to find at such a large scale. Um I certainly don't see it here in Duluth. I certainly didn't see it when I was in school out in Tacoma. That sort of common values and the camaraderie that is born out of that, the trust that's born out of that. Were you out there for the Ute Park Fire 2018? Were you on the uh, that fire was my department? First, that was my first day of full-time work, was being evacuated from Philmont. So I was I reported for work at 8 a.m., was told we were evacuating the village at 9 a.m. I didn't know, like, I was, benefit for me was I didn't even unpack my car because I moved down there on the 31st. So, like, I drove to my rental house. I didn't even unload my car. I think I'd take my stereo and like my sleeping bag out of my car. So I, I was like, well, I guess I'll put my sleeping bag back in my car. And then I hung out at motor pool for a lot of the day doing whatever I was told to do. <laughs> so I was not on the department at that time, but I saw the department working and I was like, man, I wish I was started three weeks earlier. So I could have been on the department by then, but that's crazy. Um, that's ironic. 
I can remember I was at Rich Cabins the night of the flood, and it was me and another staff. I like I was the first. Me and Anna Washburn were the first two up at that camp, and I don't really necessarily want to talk about the flood, but I will say that that next morning, after all of us had been up for none of us had slept, many of us had been running around trying to find crews in in the campsites. Many of us had found tents that had been washed or you know covered up in in, in rock debris and, and timber. And I remember walking out at like six a.m. for the sunrise, and it like the clouds had you know it's finally stopped raining for a moment. The clouds uh, broke for just a second. I remember like the pigs in the pig pen just like with this stupid white smile on their faces just like hanging out in the mud and they were having a heck of a fun time. And I just remember thinking, what do those pigs think the last six hours has been about? <laughs> Cause clearly they're having a very different experience. Do you have an 11th essential that you keep on you when you're backpacking or hiking or just everyday life? An 11th essential, uh, a belt. I, like a, I, I wear my Philmont belt every day for work still. And it drives me up the wall when the seasonal folks that worked with me this year didn't wear a belt. And it's just like that was ingrained in me from day one at Philmont. And I'm like, you wear a belt. It can be used for so many things. And in reality, you don't use it for anything other than holding up your pants. But but it's there. It's there if you need it. I carry my, I carry my compass around with me today in part because I live in the – I mean, you've been to northern Minnesota. Like there's not a mountain around here. And so I'm perpetually wondering which way – north is and so i have my compass with me and so at least in the back of my hand i'm like at least i know i could figure out which way north is <laughs> do you uh do you want to nominate anyone to be on the show i would nominate nick Kajorley. he might be surprised by my nomination in part because we worked together for one summer he was a pc while i was a cabin restoration staff member at rich cabins in 2014 he had the ability he was a cellist. He was a phenomenal musician, but he had the ability that, you know, how everyone ends their campfire shows with this like um, inspirational message or message of hope. His is the only one that I can immediately call to mind, even after the better part of a decade that I can say was neither sappy nor cliche. It was heartfelt and meaningful. And every time he presented that, he did a stellar job that was impressive and still impresses me because like whew, telling the same story every night to, to similar groups of folks like that's got to be challenging and he did a really good job uh tyler minchow would be an interesting person to hear from i know i know that you ask this question at every uh every interview you you undertake and i've thought about this but i, I guess when i'm put on the spot the first names that come to mind are nick Kajorley, tyler minchow Sean Murphy. He doesn't. He doesn't answer his phone. That's true. You have to call <laughs> Leela to get a hold of him, um, which I think drives I'm, her up the wall. Sorry, Sean and Leela, we're giving you a hard time because <laughs> um, we love you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it would be cool to hear. It would be awesome to hear from like Anthony Martinez. Like he worked at Philmont for the like thirty something years. He's been the fire chief for the Cimarron Municipal Department for decades. Any of those maintenance guys are cool to talk to. Do you have any closing thoughts? I mean, I guess the closing thought I'd have is kind of the way I've thought about cabin restoration and why I think it's such a good, valuable thing. Because I think it's easy to think, oh, man, cabin restoration, like, who cares? Like, a bunch of people walking around with axes, like, they might do something important, but, like, who cares? What I would always tell the staff that worked for me and worked with me, more importantly, was... Like the value in cabin restoration is not necessarily, oh, how do I put this? So the mission, the mission, right? The mission of Philmont is supposed to be like delivering wilderness adventures that last a lifetime. That's awesome. Laudable goal, super short term, right? Like that's, that's meant for the people that are there currently. No one else is the focus of that. That's cool. Cabin restoration was such a cool job. And I think it's such a valuable program at Philmont. Even if it, even if the work isn't up to like premier gold level lead stand, like who cares? Like the point of cabin restoration, in my mind, 
is to provide opportunities to protect that experience today for your grandkids, right? So like the work we do at Cabin Restoration was never talked about, oh, three months is the time frame, next summer is the time frame. The work we did, the time perspective we always had was 50 or 60 or 70 years. The work that we undertook, we were always striving to say, the next time this has to get done, it's going to be our kids or our grandkids is the hope. Make no mistake, like I, I was a part of some really cool projects, but I was a part of projects. I, I by no means, those projects were not possible without having good crews working with me. I was yeah. never able to do any of the work I did without having people that were willing to work for me, not one, but two or three summers in a row, because those are the folks, I mean, they did such good work. And it wouldn't have been possible without them. And I, I, I might be cliche, but like, I honestly, like, to the bottom of my being, like, they deserve the lion's share of the credit here. The ability to take today's experience, bundle it up, keep it in some way, shape, or form, and have it there for the next group of folks to come down the trail, not next year, not two years from now, but decades from now is super important because the trees will change, the, the rivers will flood, but if we can keep the structures in their places maintained, we can have people listen to a stomp in 20, you know, 2030 or 2040 or 2050 and hopefully have a similar experience as folks in 2007 or 2009 had when they were on track. And so I think that's the, the, the big value in cabin restoration is preserving the sites but more importantly making sure that the next next folks can can have a similar time and a similar experience with them mm-hmm.